0: Good morning again, church. If you have a Bible, uh, please open it to the Gospel of Mark. We'll be continuing on in our study and we'll be in uh, the second half of chapter 12 this morning. Mark chapter 12 is where we'll be. Now in August uh, 24, uh, 410, the city of Rome was sacked by really a ruthless band of Visigoths led by King Alaric. Uh, for the romans this this devastating event demanded some sort of interpretation why had the mighty empire of rome fallen what exactly had went wrong and roman minds began to speculate uh, that christianity was at fault uh, they believed that constantine's adopting of christianity a century before leading to the dismantling of the roman gods had had led to their demise they They believed that because Rome had forsaken their divine narrative as they saw it and adopted the narrative of the Hebrews, the gods brought judgment. Uh, And when this argument came to the attention of the bishop and great theologian of North Africa, uh, St. Augustine as we know him, he responded by writing a thousand-page letter known today as the City of God. Within, Augustine uh, set the story of Rome, both its rising and its falling within the context of biblical history rome was simply a player on god's great stage of redemptive history augustine argued but at the center of augustine's response or this letter was his two-city argument as has been called augustine argued that all human history can be divided into two cities city of man and the city of god which he finds and really traces throughout the Bible, beginning in the earliest chapters of Genesis. And very importantly, Augustine argued that we, Christians, we find ourselves simultaneously as citizens of both cities. We are currently citizens of the city of man, and we are currently citizens of the city of God, if we know Christ therefore our, our calling as the people of God, as the church, is to live as citizens of God's city while currently occupying residency in this city of man. Now, while Augustine's writings are important to us as Christians, Jesus' words are essential. So this morning our, our text contains one of the, uh, another one of Jesus' very famous sayings which speaks to this very issue. And really, I think due to its popularity, there's a danger with this passage uh, in that we oftentimes tend to run past passages like this too quickly and really miss the depth of what's actually being said in the text. So I want to ask you this morning before we get into this famous passage, maybe you want to reflect for a moment, but do you believe the Bible has any vision for, for the state? Does the Bible help us in any way think through our relationship as Christians to uh, the governing authorities, the government? Our passage this morning is found in all three of the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, which points to its significance and its importance. And here's what I think we need to learn from this passage, which will help us think through the question. As the church of Jesus Christ, we are called to be good citizens on this earth while giving full allegiance to King Jesus alone. So as the church of Jesus Christ, our, our calling is to be good citizens on this earth while giving full allegiance to King Jesus alone. I'm going to pick up in chapter 13 of uh, In 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 verse 13 of chapter 12 in Mark's gospel, this is the word of the Lord, verse 13. And they sent to him some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap him in his talk. And they came and said to him, teacher, we know that you are true and do not care about anyone's opinion. For you are not swayed by appearances, but truly speak the way of God. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay taxes then to them, or should we not? But, course, but knowing their hypocrisy, Jesus said to them, Why put me to the test? Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. And they brought one. And he said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? They said to him, Caesar's. Jesus said to them, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. Now, we're in Jesus' Passion Week of Mark's Gospel, or the final week of uh, Jesus' life here on earth. And it's the time of the Passover. It's Israel's national week-long celebration. It was a, a, a great time to be a, a temple merchant in Jerusalem this week. Thousands upon thousands of people would enter the city every day this week to make sacrifices for worship, and it's during this time that Jesus rode into Jerusalem on the back of a donkey to begin this week. And after entering the city, Jesus immediately paid a visit to the temple and had a look around. The following day, he would return to denounce what was taking place in the temple, and then he uh, he was confronted by the religious leaders regarding very importantly his authority. On the following day, Tuesday. Jesus confronts these same religious leaders by telling them a parable concerning themselves, which we addressed last week. He prophesied concerning their rejection of him, which would lead to God's judgment. But these religious leaders, they will have no part of this. They, they sought to arrest Jesus, but the text says due to the crowds, they dismissed them. However, we know that they're, they're plotting Uh, continued and even intensified. So later that day, they strategically sent an unlikely group to, to, to come to Jesus with a question to try and derail his mission, which is where we pick up this morning. But before we get to Jesus's famous answer, we need to really understand the context to which this question and answer arises out of. And to do that, I think we want to first, I want you to look at the the deep deception that we find in verses 13 and really in 14 as well. In verse 13, we read, And they sent to him some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap him in his talk. Now, it's been said, maybe you've heard it, that love and hatred are two two really of the strongest forces which bring people together. While, of course, love is preferred, we sadly know the second to be true and even evident here in our text. You would be hard-pressed to find two groups uh, more opposed and more hating each other than the Pharisees and the Herodians. They could not oppose one another more. The, the Pharisees were, were right-wing really fanatics the Herodians were left-wing liberals, you could say. The Pharisees were pro-Jewish and wanted no part of the Romans. The Herodians were the servants of Herod, the, the puppet Roman king assigned to be uh, on the throne. So these two groups wouldn't be caught doing anything together. They couldn't agree on anything except their hatred of Jesus. The the Pharisees hate Jesus because he is disrupting their religious agenda the Herodians hate Jesus because he's threatening their political agenda hatred of the son of God is the glue which binds these two unlikely groups together and the and the unlikely nature of this union really does speak to the depth of this deception and the first few words of verse 13 makes clear who is behind all of this Look at it, verse 13, the the they of 13 takes us back to the they of verse 12, referring to the religious leaders from last week's parable. It's the religious leaders who sent this unlikely duo to Jesus, and their intent is clear. They were sent to trap him in his talk. And notice how slithery this deception is in verse 14. Verse 14, and they came and said to him, teacher, we know that you are true and do not care about anyone's opinion. For you are not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. Really, wicked flattery rolls off the tongues of these guys. The, the truth of Proverbs 26 verse 23 comes to mind: A lying tongue hates its victim, and a flattering mouth works ruin. Now, ironically, they refer to Jesus as teacher, a sign of respect and authority. They say, uh, they say we notice how they refer to themselves as a group here. We know that you are true. You are upright and reliable maybe. And furthermore, you are just and impartial. You don't fear men. You teach, truly teach the way of God. The sarcasm, deceit, and irony of these words is unmistakable. They have come to trap Jesus. They don't believe a word of this. It's simply a ploy to try and lure their victim in. It's just wicked flattery. But yet it's all true. The irony here is, is, is dark and vile. They are lying about the truth to the only one full of truth. They come to unjustly confront the very author of justice himself. They, are, they seek to trap and kill their only hope of salvation and they are trying to deceive the only real way to the Father. But all this ironic Flattery was meant to set Jesus up for a question, and it was a very good question, and it was a serious one. That next, I want to unpack here and look at the serious, the the serious question in verse 14. And this is a very particular question. Uh, these guys didn't, you know, make this up on the fly. You no, know, this question had been well crafted from the top. The religious, the religious leaders have strategically crafted this question in an attempt to pin Jesus to the wall. They had the perfect question, so they thought. It was a heads you lose, tails you lose sort of question. Have you ever been asked one of those questions or ever have you ever asked one of those questions and a husband's... How about when your wife comes out of the room well dressed up and asks you, babe, do you recognize anything different about me? You're done, right? If you say no, which obviously you haven't noticed, you're in trouble. If you try and guess and you get it wrong, you're in deeper trouble. It's a lose, lose type of question. Now, in a similar but obviously a much more serious way, this is that type of question here. It's a a good question. It's a difficult question. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or not? Now, I want to be crystal clear from the outset. This is not uh, some kind of modern-sounding question regarding the size of government and paying taxes to the IRS. Well, this question is thousands of times more loaded than that. The, the tax being referred to is the, is the Roman poll tax that every adult male had to pay. It was done using the one, this one denarius coin. And by this tax, the Romans were able to keep track of the empire and fund their military, which in fact held sway over Jerusalem. So this tax literally funded the subjugation of the Jews. It was hateful to them. They detested it. Its payment was a constant reminder of, Romans, of Rome's rule over them. The coin itself, collected for the tax, was stamped with the inscription stating that Caesar was Lord. It read, Tiberius, Caesar, Augustus, son of the divine Augustus. On the flip side, on the reverse side, the title Pontifex Maximus, meaning the high priest. The the Jews hated this coin. They hated this tax. Paying it was the Romans' way of making them confess, Caesar is Lord and Rome is your master. The historian Josephus records the violent uprising by the Jewish people in 6 A.D. when this very tax was instituted. And he tells us again of another revolt, similar response in A.D. 66 due to this tax. This in, there, there's no other way to really say it here. The Jews hated it. The Jews despised it. It was a continual reminder of their subjugation to the Romans. So we, we see just how serious this question is. By it, the Pharisees and Herodians are trying to expose Jesus as either a false messiah to the Jews or a dangerous revolutionist to the Romans. So to say yes would be to agree with the Romans' unjust rule. It would expose Jesus as a messiah with no intent to deliver his people from the Romans, so they thought. But to say no would be to defy Caesar and be subject to the strong hand of Rome. They had presented the ultimate lose-lose question for Jesus. No matter how he answers, he will alienate someone and be wrong. The question is intended to force Jesus to choose between the Romans and the Jewish people. And if he picks either, his mission is over. He will either forfeit his popularity with the people or forfeit his life to Rome. This was a serious question. It was a profound question. But not nearly as profound as Jesus' answer where we will spend the rest of our time this morning. So I want to come next to what I call the, the revolutionary response here in verses 15 through 17. Now, Jesus saw right through their, their flattery and the intent of their question. In verse 15. But knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, why put me to the test? Now, this word Test or tempted is the same word found in Mark chapter 1, verse 13, referring to Satan testing or tempting Jesus in the wilderness. Jesus understands their aim in presenting this question. He knows there is a vile, satanic attempt, an intent behind this question. These religious leaders are not just trying to publicly shame Jesus. They're trying to destroy him. They want him dead. Because they want his mission ended. So you see this is not just a question. Regarding the state of taxes. In Rome. This is a a loaded question. Meant to divert the son of God. From his divine mission. In line with Satan's attempt. In the wilderness. Jesus had a mission. We've seen that all through the gospel of Mark. We see that all through the New Testament. And Jesus's mission. Carried both. Religious. And political ramifications. Just not the way these guys understood it. Jesus came to institute a new kingdom. And to establish, create, gather a new people. We must not forget the words of Mark chapter 1 verse 15. The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. So Jesus now proceeds to ask these guys a question to their question. Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. He orders them to bring him the very coin which is required for this tax. You can just imagine people getting closer and starting to huddle around in anticipation. How will he answer this question? What will he say? Verse 16, and they brought one. Ironically, Jesus doesn't have one, but they do. And he said to them, whose likeness and inscription is this? They said to him, Caesar's. As we already mentioned, each coin was stamped with a bust of Tiberius Caesar, assigning him status of divinity and ruler of the people. And then Jesus says these famous words, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. Now I know this may be one of the most familiar statements ever spoken by Jesus. It's, it's right up there with love thy neighbor as thyself. And I think because of this we tend to miss just how revolutionary this statement was and really miss its radical impact in the moment and on western civilization going forward this group could have never imagined this answer coming from jesus by this statement jesus does the unexpected he both acknowledges at the same time the legitimacy of a pagan government while demanding primary allegiance to god alone And this brings us back to, as where I began, Augustine's two-city argument. As the Christians, as Christians, we are simultaneously citizens of two cities. So how do we think about this? So really embedded, I think, in this statement are two truths we must grab hold to this morning to help us think about it. And the first one is this, that as Christians, we are to be good citizens in this world jesus commands that what belongs to caesar ought to be given or paid to caesar in this case taxes now at first glance this may not seem all that revolutionary to us but we must not forget the context again jesus as a jewish man just okayed a tax to rome the jews oppressors and it's a tax which uh which which in fact is used to strengthen their military which upholds their oppression and even worse This is to be done through an idolatrous coin stating Caesar is Lord. The people would have been shocked by this. So this is more than a a clever answer by Jesus to get out of a so-called conundrum. There is no Capitol Hill briefing going on here. Jesus is not avoiding the question with his own question. He actually, with this question and with this response, provides something, I believe, of a theology regarding government and the Christian faith. We must not disconnect this statement from the previous parable we studied last week, which concluded with Jesus prophesying the destruction of his vineyard, Israel, in its current state, and the institution of the church, the new spiritual temple. So Jesus here provides what I believe to be a paradigm of sorts on how we, the church of Jesus Christ, are to understand our place in this fallen world as we execute his mission on this earth. Now, every state in history up to this point was built upon a claim to supernatural authority, be it the nation of Israel or pagan Rome. In other words, to live under any government up until this point meant to believe and embrace their God. To, you, you either bowed to their God or you revolted. There was no other option, which is exactly why they present this question as they do. This is exactly the tension that was existed between the Jews and the Romans. So what Jesus is saying here is unthinkable. It is revolutionary. Jesus here legitimizes a pagan government, even one that is oppressive and cruel. Jesus is no anarchist. Jesus is no revolutionary zealot. He says, give to Caesar what's due him. Pay taxes. Obey the governing authorities over you in every way you can. This is a shocking thing for Jesus to say. But we know, if we know our Bibles, we know that God has ordained authority in our lives. He has ordained the family. He has ordained the church. And He has ordained the government. And the rest of the New Testament affirms and expounds on this. In the most lengthy passage on human government... In Romans chapter 13, Paul says these words, and I'm going to read them in full to you, verses 1 through 7. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. for There is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities, resists what God has appointed. And those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval, for he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this, you also pay taxes. For the authorities are ministers of God, attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them. Taxes to whom taxes are owed. Revenue to whom revenue is owed respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. God legitimizes government. It's His plan. Government is a good thing, even though they don't always act good. Almost any government is better than anarchy. Look, the the Roman government was oppressive and cruel. Paul writes under the tyrannical emperor nero history says took paul's very life when he writes these words in roman but as cruel as rome was it was still fulfilling the role assigned by god to bring order and some measure of justice governments are instituted by god to do this very thing that's why we read in first timothy 2 that for first of all i Then I urge that supplication, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high places, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly, dignified in every way. So as Christians, we have real responsibilities to government. We are to pay taxes. Christians should not cheat on their taxes. We are to pray for our leaders. No matter our political disagreements, we should not disrespect our leaders. While we can and should disagree with them in a healthy way, we do not slander or despise them by mouth or by Facebook post. We are to honor and obey our government in any way we can. We are to give to Caesar what is Caesar. I just want to take a moment here and say to you in light of this reality of God's authority over our life, that if you work for our government, maybe you're a police officer A fireman, a government official, or you serve in one of the branches of our military. Thank you for your service to our country. Thank you for fulfilling the role God has assigned to you. To uphold order and extend justice in our nation. But I want to remind you that the authority you have been invested does not ultimately come from your boss from our governor or any ruling political body. It comes from God. Your responsibility is to wield that authority with justice as unto the Lord. Now maybe you're wondering, Pastor Jimmy, are you saying that the Bible calls for us to give unqualified obedience to our government? I'm not. There are limits upon all authority outside of God. There are limits upon the authority of the state for sure. Civil disobedience is right when the government either prohibits us from doing what the Bible clearly commands or when it commands us to do what the Bible clearly prohibits. And we find warrant for this in Acts chapter 4 and Acts chapter 5 when the governing authorities arrested the disciples and ordered them not to preach about Jesus. A clear command in the Bible. The disciples, of course, could not obey such a command. And their explanation was straightforward. We must obey God rather than men. Christians are never called to violate a command of God in obedience to the state. When man's law is in conflict with God's law, the right and proper thing to do is disobey. Now, an example much more closer to home, and one of my favorite, is found in a very, very important letter written by Dr. Martin Luther King from a Birmingham prison in 1963. Due to his civil disobedience, Dr. King found himself again arrested for protesting. But this time there was a a charge being leveled against him regarding the justice of his disobedience by many white pastors. And they wrote an open letter airing their grievances entitled A Call of Unity. And in response, Dr. King justifies his action, writing this famous letter from a prison cell in Birmingham where he says these words, I hope, sirs, you can understand our legitimate and unavoidable impatience. You express a great deal of anxiety over our willingness to break laws. This is certainly a legitimate concern. Since we so diligently urge people to obey the Supreme Court's decision of 1954 outlawing segregation in the public schools, at first glance it may seem rather paradoxical for us consciously to break laws. One may well say, how can you advocate breaking, advocate breaking some laws and obeying others? The answer lies in the fact that there are two types of laws, just laws and unjust I would be the first to advocate obeying just laws. One has not only a legal but a moral responsibility to obey just laws. Conversely, one has a moral responsibility to disobey unjust laws. Now, what is the difference between the two? How does one determine whether a law is just or unjust? A just law is a man-made code that squares with the moral law or the law of God. And an unjust law is a code that is out of harmony with God's law the moral law the segregation laws of our nation's past stood in direct confrontation with god's law stating clearly that all people were made in the image of god god assigns e- equality dignity and worth not man therefore obeying man's law forced people to break god's law therefore the law was unjust immoral therefore it was right and good for king to disobey but even still we in light of god's authority setting it over us we should be very careful and i think uh, very discerning and very careful about overthrowing power in some revolutionary way as the people of god as dr king so faithfully demonstrated our savior was no zealot and neither should we We should exhaust all resources, options, and legal channels before we choose to disobey. And we have to be willing to suffer consequences for breaking the law of man. The apostles were arrested and tortured, as was Dr. King, before change would come. But Jesus says more than just render to Caesar that which is Caesar. He also said, very importantly, render to God the things that are God's. So we have a duty to be good Christian citizens in this world. But we have an even greater obligation to uphold allegiance to our true king, Jesus Christ. So while we are good citizens on this earth, we must live as fully devoted citizens of Christ's kingdom. Now, refusing to be trapped by the either or agenda, Jesus provides this third way in the most astonishing fashion if the coin has caesar's image on it then it belongs to him therefore give him what's owed him yet we as human beings bear a different image we bear god's very image each one of us are marked by the image of god and so we are we are to give to God what is rightfully His. Our very lives are true allegiance and worship. Now by this statement, Jesus makes clear there's only one true God. And it's not Caesar. We have a, a duty to the government to live as good citizens. We have a command to give full allegiance to God alone. He alone is worthy of our worship, not any government. Governments play an important role. Governments are not eternal. God alone is eternal. And we bear his image and therefore are required to give him his due allegiance. Friends, the Bible is crystal clear. We're all made in the image of God. We all bear his mark. He created us all. And we are all fallen and guilty before him. And we will all have to ultimately give an account. Not to any human government. Not to the United States of America. Whatever country you are from. We will all have to give an account to him. Everyone. Whether you say you believe in God or not. You will on that day when you stand before him. We all have to give an account to the one true God who created us and the one true God possessing the right to judge us. And Christianity alone offers a sufficient answer to the question, how will you give an account on that day? If you're honest, you know there are things in your life you must answer for. You have not always done what is right. And there's a God you must answer to. The God who created you, He's the one who's perfectly right. He's holy and just in every way. He's perfectly true, perfectly loving, perfectly holy, perfectly trustworthy. It's him we have to give an account to. It's been said that all religions do lead to God in the sense they all empty out at his judgment seat. The real question is, what answer will they provide you on that day? There's only one religion that has a Savior. There's only one religion with the good news of the gospel. And Jesus Christ is the Savior we all need. And this is exactly why Jesus came. The King himself came to live a life that we should have lived. Never sinning. But then to die a death that we deserve on our behalf for our sins. So that we might receive his forgiveness and eternal life and he rose again demonstrating that it's he's the true king of his eternal kingdom and that he grants access to all who will enter by faith in him and him alone and brothers and sisters if that's you today you don't know christ you access to his kingdom comes through Christ, through faith in Him, through repentance and a trust in Him, making Him King and Lord of your life. Jesus came to institute a new kingdom as a new king whom full allegiance is due. This is where I want to speak directly here. And I... There is... This is why I see the danger and the reason why we need to be very careful about referring to any nation as a Christian nation. America is not a Christian nation. Did the principles of Christianity influence the founding of our nation? Yes. Were some of the founding fathers, though fewer than we tend to think and read about, were they, some of them, truly believers? Probably so, yes. Has our legislation recognized the influence of our Christian heritage in making laws? Yes. However, that does not mean that most people in America are Christians or that a truly Christian worldview dominates our culture. While we are to be good citizens of the United States, our true citizenship and the purpose of our mission ...is not bound up with the United States of America. It's not this city. It's another greater city. Look, within healthy Christianity... ...there is a place for love of country. There is a place for proper patriotism. There's a place for honoring our nation's history and current moment. There's a place for Christians to labor faithfully... ...within our government and institutions... All can be acceptable and good. We are to be good citizens. So please don't hear me say anything less than that this morning. But I want you to hear also. There is a line which is often crossed. And we need to be very careful. I even experienced that this week while preparing this message. I received an email asking if I would like to join our church into a larger prayer group for our nation in light of this pandemic from 2 Chronicles 7:14, If my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven, I will forgive their sin, and I will heal their land. Now, this is a great verse in the Bible. Still applicable to us today. But there is a specific context to this promise in the Old Testament. It was given to Israel in a specific moment in redemptive history. For us to take out Israel and insert America in this passage. That he will heal our land. That's a promise. That is at best confusing At worst, a distortion of the kingdom of God. There are no promises like that for any nation state today. Now, it's true. We should repent. And it's true. God may decide to bless our land if we do. But the particular nature of that passage has nothing to do with America or any other nation state today. I just want to ask you a question. Just consider for a moment. What does that say to our international brothers and sisters around the world? Are they to pray this for their country as well? Does the same promises that were related to Israel pull out America and insert any other nation in there? Is that how it works? Or do we also, I think, tend to say, not directly but indirectly, that... Brothers and sisters around the world must come to America to receive such blessings and promises of God. Brothers and sisters, we are called to be good citizens on this earth. But if our citizenship on this earth detracts us, pulls us back from our full devotion to Christ and his kingdom, we need to repent and refocus our citizenship in this city should produce a longing in us for another city. Hebrews 11, we find a list of believers gone before us who all lived by faith. Set as an example for us. And in verses 13 through 16 of Hebrews chapter 11, we're given this summary and this reasoning for their faith. These all died in faith, having not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and and exiles on this earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, They would have had opportunity to return, but as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared them a city. We are strangers. We are exiles in this country. This is not our home. We are temporary citizens passing through. Our promises rest on a far better city. We must keep this in perspective. And the application for this sermon needs to go in my heart and in your heart in a myriad of ways. But I I just want to challenge you this morning just to consider. If your approval or disapproval of a political party... Is more of what you're known for than the gospel of Jesus Christ, there may be a problem. If the bumper stickers on the back of your car identify you more with a political party than King Jesus, there may be a problem. We need to come back to understand what's being taught here. Look, because I want to be clear there's a good place. for for patriotism. My dad served our country faithfully in Vietnam as an 18-year-old young man. And he came home with effects of the war that lasted his entire life. Until two years ago, he took his very life because of it. So I understand the importance of honoring our troops and our country. My family knows that. But I know my hope for my father and my life and your life does not rest upon this country. We serve a far better king with a far better country. As one author says, Independence Day for the Christian is not 4th of July. It's not marked by a flag. Our Independence Day is Easter. It's marked by a cross and an empty tomb. So this statement by Jesus is truly revolutionary. With this statement, Jesus brought clarity to us as the people of God. As to how we are to live our lives on this earth while we labor for him. We must give government its rightful place. We honor, we submit where we can. We recognize the goodness in government over our lives by submitting and obeying the authorities over our lives. But our worship is due God alone. We belong to King Jesus, not any state, not any ruler, not any nation. And we labor as the church of Jesus Christ in currently with a zip code in this city for that city which is to come. As the church of Jesus Christ, we're called to be good citizens on this earth while giving full allegiance to King Jesus alone. So, church, maybe as we finish this sermon, uh, a simple question you might want to put down in your notes and consider it more is what is it in my life maybe we can think about it in terms of government and politics but maybe it's broader than that what is it in my life that tends to draw me away from my full allegiance to King Jesus and living for him what is it that's keeping me as I live in this city to live for that city let's pray Worship team, you guys can come back up as I pray. Father in heaven, we, hello, we thank you that our hope, our promises are fixed on a far better king, your son, our savior. That our citizenship is seated in a far better city your heavenly city the kingdom of god and Lord I I pray for us as a church we we have a duty to be good citizens for now in the United States for us who live here we should pay taxes we should pray for our leaders we should seek justice we should live for the good of our neighborhood might it be said that if our church was not in this neighborhood, this would be a far worse neighborhood we want to be good neighbors faithful to live as good citizens in this city but we must do that we're commanded to do that with full allegiance to you so we don't want to confuse and conflate the city of man with the city of god so where we're grateful for all the blessings that come to us as americans all the joys and the privileges that we get in our great nation, we know our hope's not found here. It's in a far better city, in a far better land, run by a far more faithful and sovereign king. And it's him we follow as a church. And Lord, let us live for you. Let us understand the the great significance that we, as the people of God, as the church of Jesus Christ, can bring into the city of man a picture, a foretaste of the city of God. We do that by living as God's people. And we most assuredly do that by preaching our king. So Lord, remind us again where we need to fully commit our lives, pledge our allegiance to you again. Help us to be faithful. In Jesus' name, amen.